Hi everyone, this is the Unorthodoxy Podcast and you are very welcome as always. My name is Duncan Rayburn and we've arrived at part three in our series on reworlding, looking at what's going on when faith and understanding are in transition by considering the nature of interpretive experience, how we read the world, how we experience our own understanding. In the previous episode, I mentioned an unconscious idea that many people hold on to, which is this idea that interpretation is the result of the fall of humanity, the result of Eve and Adam's seizing what did not belong to them. Against this idea, I argued that it is easier to believe that interpretation was necessary right from the beginning, and that the fall involves giving up the surplus of meaning, which is symbolized by the fact that there are many trees in the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve give this up in favor of a more monolithic interpretive strategy, which is symbolized by Eve and Adam's insistence on seizing the one kind of fruit that wasn't really there for them to take, as well as the seizing of language by that soiled and grounded reptilian beast who tempted Eve first and then, by extension, Adam too. It is a very recent modern enlightenment idea that suggests that when we interpret anything, we should arrive at a clear, singular, unambiguous meaning. This is linked to the advent of the so-called university of being that I spoke about at length in my series on a murdered god and an exiled queen, which you should check out if you haven't done so already. Much of what I have to say here is complemented quite nicely by what I explored there. What started to happen in a lot of modern science was that Enlightenment-era people started to assume that there is always a clear, objective meaning to be found in anything that we explore. Ambiguity was, in a way, anathema. This gave rise, in biblical hermeneutics, but also in other aspects of life, to something we might call interpretive absolutism, which is rooted in the naive realism that we've already spoken about. And furthermore, it gave rise to the idea that our interpretations need to be correct and accurate. In the process, interpretation became a somewhat scientific enterprise. This idea still infects a great deal of modern scholarship, but it also infects spiritual life, religious studies, and various forms of theology. On the surface, we are comforted by the idea that truth is easy to get to, that there is clarity to be found, that there is a world quite apart from any form of de-worlding or necessary process of re-worlding. The trouble has always been that this univocal, univocal approach to meaning-seeking and meaning-finding has always produced its exact opposite. Christian Smith explores this idea in his very provocative and fascinating book, The Bible Made Impossible, which I highly recommend. The paradox is this. The more we cling to strict either-or, one-right-way thinking, the more variation and ambiguity emerges. The more we insist that the truth is simple, that there is no need for really grappling with meaning, the more complicated and inaccessible the truth actually becomes. The more we try to insist on building our very own Tower of Babel, the more linguistic variations are produced. We strive for the univocal, but end up with the equivocal. In this way, certain more radically relativist forms of postmodernity are not the opposite of modernity, but its natural outcome. Think about it this way. 
Let's say you're in a relationship with a sibling or friend or partner and you get into a squabble of some kind. The two of you start arguing about, say, something that happened, but which both of you for some reason remember very differently. One way to approach the argument is to insist that there is only one correct interpretation, one thing that happened, one meaning, one absolute truth at the center of your experience, and of course, only one right way of remembering it. The trouble is you both remember the thing very differently, and the more that you argue that there must be one correct interpretation, the more your squabble will start to turn into rivalry and even some kind of a shouting match. It's even likely that the original difference between your two perspectives will start to be exaggerated. Now you start to find not just one difference to argue about, but many differences. In a state of constant negation, rivalry increases and differences proliferate. You may both try to appeal to some external points of measurement, but since there is no one else around to back either of you up, the argument goes nowhere. You end up resenting each other, although both of you are not exactly sure why. To me, these sorts of arguments are utterly pointless. No one wins because everyone believes that they are right and the other person is wrong. What is more interesting to me, as is the point of this whole series, is what is going on here. Why did one person remember differently to the other? The simple answer, and it's something that I want to explore in this episode, is that, in a sense, everything really is relative. But before you freak out, let me be clear. I'm saying that everything is relative, but not that anything goes. Just because we're abandoning interpretive absolutism, which results mostly from the fear that we will end up being too rigid, it doesn't mean that we have to resort to interpretive nihilism, which is the fear of being too close-minded. In this episode, I want to explore the inevitability of what we might call interpretive branches, a kind of interpretive perspectivism. If interpretive absolutism and interpretive nihilism are both out of the question, we're going to have to acknowledge that some form of relativism must be part of our rewilding activities, if we are to deal well enough with our faiths and understandings being in transition. This can't be the kind of relativism that merely pits one point against another, declaring one to be right and the other one to be wrong, or one to be the truth and the other one to be mere interpretation. But this also can't be the relativism of interpretive nihilism, which says that anything goes and that we can make things mean whatever we want them to mean. So what kind of relativism is defensible? I can only begin to answer the question here, although I can say that more answers are still going to be on their way. The most obvious thing to note right up front is that the Bible and the Christian tradition both support a kind of relativism right up front. Most obviously, in the first chapters of Genesis, we are all designated as creatures. This is plain to see no matter how you read Genesis. The only absolute reality then as even fundamentalist Christians must acknowledge, is God. At the root of fundamentalism, which largely concerns rebuilding the Tower of Babel, is the seed of its own undoing, which I find rather interesting. To designate us as creatures is to acknowledge the fact that we do not support our own being. We are composite beings who are born, live, grow old and die. 
And even if we do not grow old and die, we would still remain dependent on the reality of God for our own reality. On top of this, several scriptures point to the mystery of this absolute divinity, which suggests that our relativity to God implies a noteworthy gap between what God is thinking and what we are thinking. In Isaiah 55, for example, we read these words, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways. And in Ephesians 3, St. Paul echoes this idea in acknowledging that God can do abundantly more than we can ask or think. Some might argue against all of this by pointing out that human beings are made in the image of God and so should be able to arrive at God's absolute truth. But this just misunderstands what an image is. An image of something is not the thing itself. And it gains its reality only by virtue of referring to the thing itself. Another way of thinking about it is to notice that an image is the thing emptied of its nature. Again, the image is not identical with what it represents, and so it knows its origin only by analogy. To be the image of God is, in precise language, to be that which is not God, but which has the potential to point beyond itself towards that which is more ultimate than itself. So that, in a nutshell, is the first kind of relativity that anyone, even vaguely associated with theistic Christianity, should be very comfortable with. We are creatures relative to the Creator. In fact, the prohibition of idolatry in the scriptures can be understood as the prohibiting of taking anything in creation, the relative, as an absolute. Idolatry is about mistaking the image for what it represents. And this indicates, whether we are comfortable with it or not, that a kind of relativism in our thinking is actually required. We cannot have a faith that takes itself as absolute either. In fact, the very idea of faith suggests trusting what is beyond and outside the self, something not ruled or mastered by the self. In a sense, we can see that the faith of both interpretive absolutism and interpretive nihilism fail at this. Both take their own perspectives to be, in a sense, sufficient in and of themselves. Both perspectives, in a way, take themselves too seriously. The interpretive absolutist says, I own the truth. The interpretive nihilist says, there is no truth to own. But in a way, these two perspectives are quite similar because they are both, in a way, absolutist about it. Then, together with the relativism between creature and creator and between faith and reality, there is an acknowledgement in the Bible and in tradition that relativity or relationality is found in creation itself. Everything is relative to everything else within the created order. This is also suggested in the Genesis account of creation, which, whether you take it literally or laterally, implies a given order to things that has also to be discerned. If it were immediately apparent to us, we would not even need the Genesis story to point it out. And in fact, we would not even need the Bible if we could simply intuit in a naive, realist manner what is going on. So, as is intimated in Scripture, it's not just that we need to interpret God, but that we also need to interpret what's going on in the world, as well as what God might be doing in and through the world, because it is far from obvious. 
On this front, we have examples of the interpretations of dreams by Joseph in the book of Genesis and an interpretation of an inscription by Daniel in the book of Daniel. We also have interpretations of visions by prophets and the interpretations of nature by the psalmists. And there's no fear in any of this. Just because we have to interpret creation as fellow created beings doesn't mean that knowledge is unattainable. It just means that our knowledge will always carry with it a sense of its own relativity to other things, including other ways and perspectives on knowing. Interpretation is required, always. Really, no one should be freaking out about this at all. All of this shouldn't even be controversial for anyone. Even if it is uncomfortable, it is the discomfort experienced by the decented self that is coming to recognize that it is not God, that it is not in charge of everything, that it is secondary, dependent, and reliant on a reality that is bigger and far more ultimate than it is, and on realities that are also dependent and reliant on that larger reality. There is a proverb I have loved ever since I first heard it, and it says, The sage points to the moon, the idiot looks at his finger. Well, the interpretive absolutist and the interpretive nihilist are both idiots. The only difference is that the one thinks the finger is the moon and the other thinks that the finger is, isn't even itself and that there is no moon and therefore nothing to point to or, or with. The sage, however, recognizes the truth in the relation between the finger and the moon, the one pointing beyond itself to something else. I think what makes people nervous about all of this relativity has to do with the possibility that people might start believing that all things are equally important. That if we end up acknowledging the need for some kind of relativity or relativism means that we will automatically start to believe, if not that anything goes, then perhaps that any interpretation will do. This is not quite interpretive nihilism, but it gets fairly close to it. The idea that there is a reality that we are pointing to, but that our interpretations of that reality will all necessarily be equally good. Well, I don't think the fear of this is justified. There are, there must be, better and worse ways of interpreting things. We may not always know exactly how to arrive at which ways of seeing are better or worse. There will be struggles to figure the truth out in process, but... Just because a thing is difficult to do, just because it is difficult to know which ways of interpreting are better or worse, doesn't mean it can't be done. This is something really nicely symbolized in a story that is probably familiar to you. In Genesis 32, we read about Jacob wrestling with a stranger. Jacob's name means usurper which is appropriate since Jacob stole his brother Esau's birthright and then fled for his life because his brother wanted to kill him. In this wrestling match, we find Jacob confronted with that which is other to his existing paradigms and perceptions. A stranger is, after all, the representative of that which is unknown. Jacob won't let the man go until he blesses him. But when it becomes clear that Jacob is winning the contest, usurping the man again, the man touches his hip and injures him. Then the man tells Jacob that his, that is Jacob's name, should no longer be Jacob, but should be Israel, the meaning of which I will get to in a moment. In the book of Hosea, it's 
it's one of the prophets in chapter 12, we read that the man that Jacob wrestled with was actually an angel, but also somehow God. So the stranger who represents the unknown turns out to be, you guessed it, unknown. His nature is ambiguous enough that we find three different interpretations. He is a man, but not quite a man. Rather, he is an angel, but maybe he isn't an angel. He is God himself, but maybe he can't be God exactly because in that case, Jacob wouldn't have won. So maybe he was an angel or was he? It seems like we have a case of interpretive ambiguity that we are not going to easily overcome. But this turns out to be very useful. The ancient rabbis started to look at the story and the ambiguity in it in this way. The angel signifies the messenger and God signifies the message and the man signifies the one who receives the message. I'm going to add my interpretive spin on all of this. No matter how you interpret this, it's got something to do with both God and man. Which is to say, as I've already suggested, that maybe the stranger was symbolic of all three. Then Jacob wrestles with this symbol. He wrestles with a man who is the mediator between heaven and earth, with the angel as the mediator between God and man, and with God himself who is the mediator of all of reality. In other words, Jacob wrestles with all dimensions of meaning. And he will not let the stranger, the man, angel, God, go until he blesses him. He receives a very strange blessing indeed. His hip is thrown out of joint, which is to say he ends up walking differently than he did before. In wrestling, his way of walking through the world changes. Then the stranger tells Jacob that there is a better way to understand his life. He is not the usurper, but the wrestler. Israel, his new name, means wrestles with God. The man slash angel slash God essentially says, there is a better way to interpret the reality of your own being, and it is this. You are not Jacob. You are not merely the one who usurps, who sees things in either or binary terms. You are Israel, the one who wrestles. You see the complexity and ambiguity in things. This, incidentally, then becomes the entire mandate of the Jewish people. And it's a mandate that their entire history makes very evident. This is the name carried by the people of God throughout the Bible. So, what does wrestling mean? And the answer is, it depends. You will win sometimes and gain blessing, and you will lose sometimes and gain the blessing. Sometimes things will make sense, and sometimes they won't, and sometimes they will both make sense and not make sense. Worlding and deworlding go together in the process of reworlding. In the wrestling match between Jacob and the stranger, he both wins and loses. He wins, which is why he gets the blessing, and yet he also loses when the stranger stops him from walking normally. The idea of wrestling with God, man, and angel, of wrestling with meaning itself, became a symbol for the rabbis of what happens when we read the scriptures too. We wrestle with the text, and sometimes the text, the text of the scriptures or the text of life itself, sometimes it leaves us feeling out of joint. We are often injured and we end up limping. Still, we need to keep on wrestling, because that is where the blessing is. 
And why should we keep on wrestling? Because this is part of reworlding. This is what it means to be human. It's about working towards wholeness, towards transcending and including the faith we have and the understanding we have, and then transcending and including that, and so on. This is also about seeking to understand hierarchies of meaning, figuring out what is more important and what is less important as we navigate our own interpretive journeys and experiences. Even in what I've mentioned in this episode, there are hierarchies. God is more important and significant than everything. He is certainly more significant than the image of God. Some creatures, human beings, are more important and significant than others, like fauna and flora, and some meanings are certainly more significant than others. Israel is a better name for Jacob than Jacob was. Again, Jacob meant usurper, but he discovered that he could be usurped too, and there was far greater blessing in that in the end. This is always going to be part of the process of reworlding, of finding ourselves renewed in our wrestling with the tensions between worlding and deworlding. We will often arrive at an entirely new understanding of who we are. We will find ourselves, if not literally, then in a sense at least spiritually, renamed.